Hey, I, I like it when you're practicing when I'm preaching. This is like wonderful. We can have a lot of fun with this. It'll be a new style. <laughs> On the back of your uh, bulletins is um, um, just some important announcements. Read them. But uh, the big one is um, this Wednesday, Jude and I are starting uh, Parenting the Love and Logic Way. And uh, I know many of you are thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me because my kids are already grown. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. You still have to help parent adult children. How many of you parent adult children? Ah, did it get easier? Did it get cheaper? I didn't think so. <laughs> so, um, if you are interested in learning more about parenting, be here for this. Uh, and as well, we could some use some of you older parents. I won't identify what that means or define what that means. I'm one of those. Because the young parents will be there, and we really want to kind of mix it up. So uh, we'd love to have you there. By the way, uh, you know I had a granddaughter born six weeks ago. If you haven't seen the pictures, come by. If you haven't seen them, come by anyway, because I'll show them to you again. Uh, But we have another granddaughter due any minute. So um, uh, this time in Dallas, Texas, so we've been praying. Uh, It's my daughter-in-law. She's ready to have that child over with. So you can look on here and uh, come. I'd like to stop and again pray for um, the wolves down in Patty. You know, when we get into Philippians and we, you're going to start seeing Paul as he pours out his love for people. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to kind of jump into that whole area. What does that look like? The community of faith. And the reason why we stop and pray for people is because we care about them, don't we? And um, they mean a lot to us, the people right here in our own fellowship. The reason why we pray for our president for the election is because we care about things. We care about our country, and we care about what's happening around us and the division that we're all kind of sensing and feeling and not sure what to do about it. So there's real reasons why, uh, why we pray together. Hey, Mark, there's a really loud echo or ring up here. So let's stop and pray. Father, we lift up Don and Patty to you, Lord. Um, They mean an awful lot to us. Uh, Father, and I know we have many other people in our congregation that are sick. I don't know who all of them are. So I'm not trying to single Don and Patty out alone because I care about all the people in our church. But we do pray for Don as he fights for his life with um, cancer. Pray, God, that you would continue to let the chemo work. And uh, whatever method you choose is up to you. We just ask that you would heal him of this cancer, Lord, and restore him to us. Thank you, God, for that. And Father, we do lift up our president, our government, all of the government from the president of the United States all the way down to our local uh, town council members and mayors. And uh, Lord, give them all wisdom. I'm so glad that you're God and you know what to do with all of them. Uh, We don't. So give them wisdom. Help them to lead us well as uh, a people group. And Father, I pray that uh, I pray for the upcoming election that you would um, that you would just have your way, Lord. We will vote our conscience again, as we say regularly. Thank you for the freedom, but Lord, we look to you in faith. You're the one that we trust, and so I pray that you would use this time to draw that part of our country that doesn't know you, draw them back to you, um, so that they would learn about your wonderful grace and your wonderful love for them. Thanks, Lord. In your Son's name, we pray. Amen.
Okay, we're in a series in Philippians that we entitled uh, Standing Together, the Case for Joy. This is, um, I'm going to argue all the way through the book that the real route to enjoy each other in the Lord and to find that deeper joy that God has for us, part of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, is that we do it together. You won't find it alone. Uh, Last week, we looked at the background of Philippians from the book of Acts, and we learned uh, three key things. We learned that the suffering of Paul and Silas was emphasized in Acts 16 in the story, the background story to Philippians. That's going to become very important today. He's going to jump right into that whole area of suffering. We learned that women were held in very high regard by Paul. We're going to see that in Philippians. I mentioned last week that in Philippi, This was a place where it would have been appropriate in the empire for women to have positions of responsibility. And so he highlights in Acts uh, some of the women that were there and in Philippians itself. We're going to see that when we get to Philippians 4 a little bit. And then the third thing we saw was that Paul was courageous to bring the gospel to a pagan world. It was a pagan world dominated by the imperial cult. So he was risking something. There was a cost to him to do that, to tell people to... Uh, proclaim Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar as Lord, especially in the, in the city of Philippi. So those three things, suffering is emphasized, women are held in high regard, and Paul was courageous to bring the gospel out to a pagan world. And these are all part of our world today, aren't they? It's all part of our life. We're wrestling with all these things, same things today. So Philippians is very significant. Today we start in Philippians itself. So if you want to follow along, grab a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians 1 eventually. And we're going to work to define citizenship and the importance of working together. Citizenship involves a community. It's not like you're a citizen by yourself. There's no value in that. And we're going to see what that looks like. The reason why Paul wrote Philippians was that they had become concerned about him while he was in prison. This is why this is called a prison epistle. So he's in prison in another location. They had heard about that and had become concerned for him. Now, he had spent some... When we read Acts 16, when he was there planting the church, there was a very deep relationship that formed there. They saw what happened with him and Silas being beat and thrown in prison. In fact, the uh, Philippian jailer and his family were probably the third group of converts, but they were the early converts that formed the church. And so these people knew what had happened to Paul. So there's a real bond there that had developed, and they had become concerned. So the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to Paul to encourage him and care for his needs. This is found in Philippians 2, um, in verse 25. He says, But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. And so they had sent him to care for them. You see, back then, when you're in prison, uh, they didn't have the same sort of rights and uh, care and uh, all that that we have today. You're in prison. You basically starve to death, and so you have to care for your own needs. So you hope your family and friends really do love you so that they would come and help you. And so the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to help him out while he was in jail. And he had become very ill. We're going to see that in chapter 2. And so the Philippians... Had the believers had become concerned now about him. So they're concerned about Paul, so they sent Epaphroditus. Then they heard Epaphroditus got really sick, so now they're concerned about him. So Paul writes the letter back to let them know all that's going on. So here we have an early example of the care that believers are to show to one another. I mean, they're sending people back and forth. It's not like you hop on a plane or give them a credit card. It's not the way it worked. 
You have to walk along very dangerous roads. And so this is a real significant step to send someone to care for someone else and then to send the letter back. So this is an early example of what it means for believers to show this depth of love. Remember our fourth principle of uh, how to apply a text was do we see, uh, do we see, does our application bring a flourishing to our own congregation? In other words, a deep care and concern that is growing. That's one of the ways that we would say that. So when we ask the question, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? In Philippians 3.20, he says that we are citizens of heaven. We're asking two very basic questions, which he's going to address right off the bat. Number one is, are our beliefs consistent and unified? That's one of the struggles we're having as a nation right now, isn't it? We're dividing. And we're dividing further and further. Uh, and it, and it, it almost seems hopeless that we would ever get our country back together again. And so part of genuine citizenship, what we're designed for, is have beliefs in common and to be unified and to experience that. But the second thing which comes out of those beliefs is, are our behaviors consistent as well? They should define our citizenship, and our behaviors reflect our beliefs. No other way to say it. Our behaviors reflect our beliefs. And so whatever direction your beliefs begin to head, your behaviors will start to model that. They'll demonstrate that. So you can tell a lot about what a person thinks uh, by the way they act live their life. You can. You can tell if a person really thinks along the lines of generosity by looking at their checkbook, their bank statement. You can tell a lot about how, how they view their, their role in community by looking at their calendar. How do they spend their time? And so beliefs, uh, are, they find their expression in our behaviors. And so what, what's interesting about uh, Philippians is that he focuses on two key areas here, and then he looks at the life of the people around him to make sense of that. The two key areas he wants to talk about, these two beliefs, are the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Christ, and the community of faith. What do we believe and how what happens in our community because of that? Now, what's intriguing is how he approaches these two key areas because he looks at behavior to make sense of it. He looks at the disunity and division within this church, and we're going to see some of that a little bit later on, and that the disunity and division leads to failure in both of these areas, both of these beliefs, the gospel of Christ and a healthy community. So division and disunity will destroy that. That's why we work really hard as staff and elders and leadership to guard the unity of our church because it's necessary. But the second thing he does, he explores how suffering makes or breaks our ministry as a church. What we can't get away from is suffering. It is going to be a part of us until the Lord comes back. It is. And so the way we handle suffering will directly relate to how we relate together as a church. If you're struggling and, and you're suffering and you're going through it alone and you don't feel like you have anyone to help you, uh, you don't feel part of anything worthwhile, do you? Some of you have been there. Some of you are there now. And so it's very important that we take the people that are suffering and we bring them. You know, I've often pictured church as uh, in the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit kind of, he moves amongst our church and he decides what everybody's going to go through. And so if everybody experienced suffering on the same day, wow, can you imagine that? 
But no, what happens is he comes along and he says, today this person needs extra grace, and maybe tomorrow this person needs extra grace. I remember the days that I needed extra grace, and I'm so grateful um, that there were people there. Nancy and I walked into Pugs for dinner this week and ran into a couple uh, that we knew from 37 years ago. I knew from 37 years ago. Nancy and I weren't married then. And uh, they were there with me when Judy died. They were there. And the wife, a few days after Judy died, I had a one and three-year-old, and it was a disaster in my house. I didn't know what to do. And I just sat down and started to cry, and I called her, and she said, I'll be right there. And we talked about that the other night at dinner. She drove right over, and she sat down with me, and she started crying with me. And if you're alone, it's, it's a hard place to be. And the Holy Spirit moves amongst the group, and he decides who needs extra grace. That's how I look at it. Now, the rest of us are called upon to bring that extra grace into the life of that person. So suffering becomes really critical. So let's jump into Philippians 1, and let's take a look at it. Okay? After introducing himself, Philippians 1, 1 and 2, as is his custom, he lays out his prayer for the Philippian believer. So let's just read it, starting in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. By the way, if you ask our staff, this would describe uh, the way we feel about you. We talk about you every week at our staff meetings. Yeah, we do talk about you behind your backs. And uh, we pray for you. We laugh at you. Sometimes we cry for you. Um, but you're very important to us. And these words describe us. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Are those great words? I long to see you. I do. I think about you. When I'm away, I uh, remember you. Uh, often you come to mind. I kind of have a deal with the Lord that when he brings one of you to mind, I just stop and pray for you. Uh, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and one of you is on my mind. Every now and then I have to remind the Lord that I do have to get sleep because uh, he'll wake me up several times in the night. It's like, all right, just leave me alone. That's enough. <laughs> and so I long for you. I long to be with you. I love you. And that's what he's saying here. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able, be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We obviously are not going to look at everything here, but I want to highlight some things. The very first thing he expresses is the joy that he feels because they are partners in the gospel. Both of those words are critical. They are partners in the gospel. I don't usually put out Greek when I'm up here. You know that, but occasionally I do. That's the word koinonia, which many of you have heard. Okay, They are partners, and it has this idea of sharing together at a very fundamental level, at a very core level of, of subsistence sometimes. Sometimes it just involves coming over and writing a check to help somebody. Sometimes it involves being at the hospital when they're in trouble. 
coming alongside, listening to them when they're struggling. Maybe they're getting, getting laid off from work. Who knows what it is? But this idea of koinonia is to have things at a very deep level in common and to share that. And that's what they did with, they sent Epaphroditus. So it's significant that the very first thing he discusses is partnership and the gospel. God's love for the broken world. That's what the gospel is. The gospel means good news. We're going to keep reminding you of that over and over and over again. The gospel simply means the good news that God has not forgotten us. We have a God who loves us. We serve the one true living God, and he cares about this entire creation and is involving himself in this creation in such a way that we will all worship him alone as God. So it's just significant that the very first things he talks about is partnership, which is community, around the gospel, God's love for the broken world. He then gives us a personal example of his own love for the Philippians, which we just highlighted, verses 7 and 8. And so that's very important. This should begin to describe, this should describe our community, our deep love and affection for each other. When you walk through the doors, do you feel that? Or do you come out of a sense of duty? Do you long to come because you get to see people here? I almost look at Sunday as a recalibration every week which is why we share in communion together. It's a chance to pause in the week and say, let's reorient ourselves around the Lord, his love for this broken world, and our love for each other. That's what this should be all about. Well, he focuses on community of faith, and it's woven all throughout the letter. He uses the phrase, for example, in Christ 21 times in the book of Philippians. It highlights our common reason for unity. We share something that the world does not share with us, a belief in the true Messiah, Jesus. He uses that phrase in Christ to help us capture, we, we have something here. We have solidarity. We have something that, honestly, the world longs to have, a, a sense of belonging. And we have that because we're in Christ. I just mentioned the word koinonia, partnership. He mentions that six times in the letter. That highlights our common purpose, what we're all about. We exist for a reason, to share with one another. I've asked you before, why does God bless a nation? To draw the other nations so that they will come to know that he alone is God. Why does God bless you? So that you could be a blessing to those around you. Yeah, to enjoy it. He wants you to enjoy it. First Timothy talks about enjoying God's blessings, but it's more profound than that. He blesses you with what you have so that you could be a blessing to the people around you. This is the idea of partnership or koinonia as we look through philippians this will allow us to develop a theology of community what is a theology of community all about what are we really all about a healthy community of faith is foundational to effective ministry in a broken world that's principle number four right does our application lead to a flourishing community if our own community is not healthy we have very little voice outside we just don't We've said that over and over again. If our divorce rate matches the culture, then we have nothing to say when it comes to marriage. It's just empty words. It's really what it is. Well, then he goes on in verse 12, and he starts to talk about his suffering. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, now, they knew what had happened to him. Okay, he's in prison. Now, remember, just a few years before this, he was there with them and went to prison. Remember that story from Acts 16. So they already have this in common, and they've learned now that he's in prison someplace else. 
Verse 13, as a result, it has been clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains or I am in prison for Christ. That's the reason he's there. It's not because he's an idiot. It's not like he broke the law. He's out there boldly proclaiming Christ, and they threw him in prison. And because of my chains, most chains, most of the brothers and, and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, it is true, he says, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I, will be put, I was put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Wow. So he's out proclaiming Christ, and they throw him in prison. And so several of the people, they go out and start talking about Christ to get him in more trouble. I just think that's fascinating. And what has he said? What does it matter? So what? Verse 18. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. What an attitude. It doesn't matter what the motivation is. If Christ is proclaimed, that's what we care about. That's his whole approach. I, I, I hope I have that attitude if I'm ever in prison and people are doing that to hurt me. He immediately works to connect with the Philippians through the example of his suffering because he had suffered with them. While his suffering is important, the reason it is important is that it is advancing God's love into his surrounding world. And that's why he exists. That's what, what he's about. That's his purpose, and I would argue that's all of our purposes. If Christ simply wanted to mature you, he'd take you home today. There's got to be a reason he left you here. Every one of you connects with someone who doesn't know Christ that the rest of us don't know. Every one of you. Every one of you. Be bold. Be courageous. And then he goes on and starts to talk about his commitment to this community. Still in verse 18. He says, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my de deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Boy, you ever relate to that? I eagerly hope and I expect that I will no way, in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. If Paul has to seek courage, you should be encouraged. I mean, this guy's out there just doing it. When you plot his life from the day he came to know Christ till the day he died, almost all of it was either proclaiming Christ outside of prison or proclaiming Christ inside of prison. He, he, he didn't take a vacation that we have a record of. He didn't. He was relentless. And he had to ask for courage. Verse 21 is this famous verse. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We quote that verse all the time um, without really thinking about what it means. We're going to come back and think about it for a moment. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. 
but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Now, what does that mean that he remains with them? More suffering. So when you quote that verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain, to live is Christ, what that means is you're going to allow Christ to have his way in your life, which is going to entail suffering, hardship. It will. He's going to put you in places where your faith is going to be tested, and that's going to be uncomfortable. So that's why he says to be with Christ is far better, because we get to escape all of it. But I know that it's better to be with you. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. So his joy is rooted in the knowledge of their continued prayer for him. That's where he starts. He says, I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So his, his joy and his hope is rooted in their continued prayer for him, which is why we pray for people. But not just prayer, it's also rooted in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Like many of us, his hope is to endure well. Um, to live is Christ. To die is gain. It is better to die and be with Christ. Why? Because you'll escape the sufferings of the world. So therefore, if God has put you in the position to live, he has a reason. He has a reason. I don't know why he took my first wife and left me here, but he did. And our prayer, that's why we pray for our sick. The elders pray for the sick. The staff pray for the sick. We pray up front here for kind of key people that are really sick. Because we want them to be with us, knowing full well that the answer to our prayer means more hardship for them. It's not an easier life. That's not what it means at all. It means that they get to stay here and, be, and stay part of the battle. It's part of what we're attempting to do. The reason why living is so critical for the benefit of each other is so that we will continue to grow and bring Christ to our own culture. You know one of the things we have not done as a church, and I'm not talking about our church, I'm talking about the, the church in the United States, is we've done a terrible job of talking about suffering. We really need to develop a better theology of what it means to suffer. Our suffering is for our benefit and the benefit of those around us. Because that's where your faith is tested, is in your suffering. That is it. And that's where the rest of the world gets to see it. The world understands suffering. They get, they get what it means to be laid off. They get what it means to be fired. They get what it means to lose somebody. They get what it means to struggle with depression. They get what it means. They get all that. But what they don't understand is what does grace look like in the middle of that? That's what they've not experienced. And so suffering is the one language we share with the world that everybody understands. How we respond as a community, not only in our own personal suffering, but in coming alongside those who suffer, is one of our loudest statements of testimony of our belief in the gospel. Because the world doesn't have that. They don't. They don't know what that's all about. This has become a key part of Paul's reason for writing Philippians, in our own culture, we're attempting to alleviate suffering, even in the extreme. We have a, 
we have uh, something to vote on about taking one's own life. Because we don't really understand in our own culture the value of suffering. Suffering plays a vital role in bringing people together. It does. I'm willing to suffer. I hope I don't have to go through what Paul goes through. But I'm at this stage of my faith that I know if I do, his grace would be there. And so would you. I know that. And so we need a better theology. Then he finishes this chapter, verse 27. By the way, this is the first imperative. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So see, our suffering creates a picture out in the community. It's a sign of their destruction if they don't listen to what's happening, if they don't watch us. That's what it means. But it's a sign that we, in fact, are on the right road. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Okay, so this is the first command to live as citizens, right? In fact, some of the older translations say that. Uh, live as citizens. Mine says conduct yourselves. And um, this is a word, it's the first time, it's a verb form for the word citizenship. We're going to see the noun a little bit later on when he says we are citizens of heaven. Its basic meaning is to live as a citizen, to live one's life together in a culture and to govern that culture. That's what this idea is all about. That's why we have the whole phrase and idea of culture care. We bring to the culture care. We bring care to them in the way we talk about things, the way we love them, the way we do that. Its central idea is focused on how we live together. So Paul explains that our basic responsibility is to live together well. It involves, first of all, standing firm, standing together. That's what we're about. It involves striving together for the sake of the gospel. It involves mission, living for the faith of the gospel, having a purpose. If you are one of the ones suffering, don't be disheartened. God is using it for a purpose. You have a purpose. It involves living together courageously, and it involves suffering. It's interesting in verse 29, for to you it has been granted. That's the verb form for the word grace, which we don't have in a modern English. We do in old English, I graced you with my presence or with a gift. This is an evidence of God's grace. For to you it has been given by Christ as an evidence of grace, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Okay, what do we just learn from this first chapter here? Um, Number one is that example is more critical than imperatives. This whole chapter is a story. It's not a list of commands of what to do. You don't get to one one command until you get to the very end. You see, Paul's life, the story that we, we live, the story provides the background for when we say to someone, you should do this. I did that. So I could say to you, I lost my first wife. I know about God's grace. So if you're struggling with that, come talk to me, and I'll help you with God's grace. How we live together is important. It's very, very critical. Are we committed to cultivating a flourishing community, or are we committed to our own needs? This is a checklist for you. It's a test. Are you committed 
to cultivating, and you have to cultivate it, culture, like everything else, deteriorates. Are each of you committed to creating, to cultivating a flourishing community, or are you committed to your own needs? Are you willing to suffer and live out your faith, or are you committed to your own comfort? Your suffering is for our benefit. It gives us a reason to step in and help. Are you committed to, uh, I mean, are you willing to trust the Holy Spirit and our prayers for each other? Or are you committed to having your own way? It's hard when you say you're going to submit to the Lord. It's hard. Are you willing to sacrifice for the person sitting next to you? Or are you bent on your own pleasures? Final question, which I think is really where he's driving, is are we willing to live as citizens of heaven for the sake of the gospel? You see, we are the new people of God. We are. We are God's instruments to bring his love out to this world. There's no shortcut. There's no other way to do it. It's us. We represent the new creation to this world. The gospel, this fantastic news, provides a radical redefinition of what it means to people of God. All we have to do is look at the propositions before us to vote, and we can see what happens without the gospel. We can see it. We bring an entirely new way of looking at the world. And it's important that we think as theologians, not as citizens of a fractured, hurting, divided culture. This is what gives us our identity and our mission. We are a new creation to reach the old creation. That's us. That's our purpose. And suffering is a part of it. Do you realize that you can't truly understand joy until you've experienced hardship? Now, when you're experiencing hardship, it seems a long ways away to get to joy. My advice is to just hang in there. Just be patient. You're one step away. Father, thank you for... uh, Thank you for your love for us. Thanks for giving us a glimpse, a picture, Lord, of what's coming. And some of us have tasted it. Some of us know well, Lord, your patience, your passion for us. Um, We also know well your willingness to take us through hard times. I pray, Father, that you would help us as a community of faith to, to live well to bring the new creation out to an old, tired creation that's really struggling, is very broken. Thank you. In your son's name we pray, amen.